All right, and welcome to the Weekly Review with Roman. Today it's Friday, January 24th, 2020. Starting off the show with some music, as we usually do. And in the last few weeks, I've gotten... I've changed up the show a bit over the years, and now I'm in the stage of playing records on the show. I have before, but really just concentrating on it. The San Francisco Public Library is a great resource to get albums there, and we have record players here, and it sounds so good. And it's also a great reminder of how um, just albums that playing full albums and being able to listen to them is a really nice reminder that that's possible. So I'll be doing that on the show today. Hear a little bit of feedback. Hopefully you all don't hear it. We've got a few technical difficulties here at the station, which might not come as a surprise. It's a very DIY space and bare bones. And right now, our fourth microphone is down and the big speaker on top is not quite working so well. So if you have a few bucks to spare, please do come by, drop it off in the bucket here. Also, we have a Venmo set up now. It's at Mutiny Radio, all one word. And if you go to mutinyradio.fm, you can find info there. Also, if you have any technology you want to donate, headphones, microphones, cords, anything like that would be super, and or know-how, that'd be super helpful. Appreciate it a lot. Today we have an informative show coming up, and I say informative because I know I'll definitely be learning a lot, and I've got a lot of news stories that are that are in the tabs here online, ready ready to go, ready to be read, as well as documentary footage that we'll be sharing the audio from and listening uh, to information about squatting that happened. This was one that happened in London in 1975. There's a, some interviews about that, and this is in direct reference to the Mom, Moms for Housing and they have thankfully been offered uh, to be able to buy the house from Wedgwood, which is a super evil company that came to their house that they were occupying with guns and traumatized people. And we also playing a little bit of an interview that two of the folks did with Democracy Now! about their experience with that. And there was a thread on Twitter that about feminist, uh, feminist occupying space, and that's where I found the link to this little documentary that I'll be playing a bit of. I say little because I couldn't think of a better adjective. It's about a little less than half an hour, and we'll be playing that later on in the program. Big thank you to folks for listening. Perhaps it's your first time. Perhaps you've listened before. Either way, thank you, and I appreciate it very much. And I volunteered this past week at, there's a Chani Nicholas talk at the Herbst Theater that was super informative and uh, just really appreciated it and she spoke with Fanya Davis and learned a lot from that talk and also the land acknowledgement that she gave um, that Tandy gave at the beginning was from uh, the Girls Rock Camp Alliance so I wanted to share that and I've been doing it now on the show for maybe a few months up to a year I don't know how exactly how long and I really appreciated the words that were used so again this is from the the Girls Rock Camp Alliance, which folks can also look up online, girlscamprockalliance.org. It's this awesome music camp for girls and trans and uh, GNC folks, non-binary folks, uh, youth across the world. There are camps that are here in the U.S. and in other countries, and it's also... Uh, there's like a lot of scholarships available, so it's like a no-one-turned-away type of thing, which is really awesome. And I've heard just amazing things about it. So, yeah, just a brief plug for this organization. And their 
I will modify this land acknowledgement to fit our situation here at Mutiny Radio. As many of uh, USA resettler immigrants or descendants of those forcefully brought to this continent, we, Mutiny Radio, must recognize and never forget that our that this space here, this radio station, is occupied on traditional, unceded, Ohlone uh, lands. Uh, we honor and are grateful for the land we occupied and recognize the ongoing damage of settler colonialism. To recognize the land is an expression of gratitude and appreciation to those whose territory uh, we reside on and a way of honoring the indigenous people who have been living and working on the land from time immemorial. Excuse me, immemorial. It is important to understand the long-standing history that has brought us to reside on this land and to seek to understand our place within the history. Land acknowledgments do not exist in a past tense or historical contents, co context. Colonialism is a current ongoing process and we need to build our mindfulness and our present participation. It is also worth noting that acknowledging the land is indigenous protocol. And if folks would like to learn more about the Bay Area land in particular, you can go to uh, ramaytosh.com and that's r-a-m-a-y-t-u-s-h.com and also check out the shumi land tax and that's s-h-u-u-m-i land tax um, <sighs> often i start the show with a bit of a rant and perhaps i'll get into it as i get into more of the news articles and thoughts come up and feel frustrated about things and Oh, there's just so much going on. So I guess I'll get right to the, I'll start off with some of the news articles and then we will, oh, yeah. I'm sure I will feel something at some point and feel the need to to speak up. And for now, I'll be sharing words from other folks. And this is a local headline and this is a positive thing and it's good to start with something positive. And again, the positive news stories we have on this show quite often are when something negative is stopped from happening or things are changed for the better and also recognizing that these negative things should not have existed in the first place. So it's from Democracy Now! You can also read about it in other places as well. From January 23rd, San Francisco District Attorney's Office ends cash bail. In San Francisco, newly sworn in District Attorney Chesa Boudin, who was a guest on the show months ago. I've guess, I guess I've lost track of time, one could say, given how I've begun this show. My memory is a little bit wonky. Um, but Chesa was in here at the studio and had a great talk with him. And I also replayed the interview quite a bit because I thought it was really important. Many of us recognize that how important it is. And as faulty as uh, the system is, it also can be helpful to organize when you have folks in positions of power who look to challenge the system and recognize it for what it is. So this was a positive, really positive thing that Chesa was elected. So um, he's ended, or they have ended cash bail, uh, saying his office will no longer ask for cash as a condition for people's pre-trial release. But Dean and many others have strong criticized, excuse me, have long, I'm gonna, I had a lot of coffee this morning. And by a lot, I mean two cups. Wow, look at me. I'm gonna slow down a bit. Boudin and many others have long criticized cash bail as disproportionately punishing defendants who are poor and people of color. The San Francisco District Attorney's Office says cash bail has also been applied unfairly with African-American defendants paying an average of 12 times more per year for pretrial release compared to white defendants. I've seen a few other write-ups about it as well. Also, I end up finding a lot of information through other sources on Twitter. So if you'd like to read up more and or follow I'm at at R-O-M-A-N-R-I-M-E-R -E on Twitter and do a lot of 
sharing and retweeting. Also, protests happening. There's always protests happening around the world. What we actually find out about and what actually happens are two different things, of course. And so one in just the three that come to mind, Puerto Rico, uh, folks were protesting, trying to get their governor to resign. They brought a big guillotine to outside the, the governor's mansion. I believe it's the mansion. So that's a big thing. That's a big deal. That's pretty fucking awesome. And in France, folks were protesting and about pensions. And I've seen some footage and there's smoke and people in the streets. There's a lot going on. And then also in Baghdad, I, I believe it was like millions or at least a million, if not more, a lot of people in Baghdad who, who have been protesting, filling the street, um, asking, demanding that the U.S. leave. The U.S. who were never, and by the U.S. military, I mean, uh, they were never welcome there. It wasn't like, oh, great, they're here. It's more like they, it's just been fucking imperialism. And folks have taken to the streets to be like, no, get the fuck out. Get the fuck out now. So sending lots of love and solidarity to all the folks who are able to, and all the folks who are able, lots of folks who aren't able and or I want to be as inclusive as I can with this language because I recognize that not everyone's able to go out and uh, folks who support in any way that they're able uh, a better world for everybody. That's what I honestly believe in. And uh, it, I believe a better world is possible. And again, we might not see it. I might not see it, but it's like little things and uh, looking to create a world where folks help each other instead of harm each other. And, uh, there's rehabilitation instead of punishment for behavior and resources are shared and everything is shared. There is more than enough to go around and how do we change? I think part of it's like the narrative. That's a big thing is if their narrative is constantly lying and telling people to be afraid of each other and to fight one another, that's going to impact people's behavior and, and their thoughts. However, what if we offered healthcare? Okay. That brings me to the next story. This is a bad story. However, you can help. Yes, this is an action or item oriented show, action show. Anyway, oh, goodness. Okay. <sighs> uh, last week on the show, I read a story about how South Dakota is looking to make it a felony for healthcare professionals to help trans youth. So obviously I'm of the mind that everyone deserves healthcare and affirming healthcare at that. As a trans person, I recognize how important it has been in my life when I've had doctors and physicians and other folks in my life who have been affirming, who have been like, believe me for when I say this is who I am and they say, oh yes, okay, great. What can I do to help you? It's really that simple. It, it should not be a fucking issue. However, there are folks who are spreading a lot of misinformation at times to cover, to cover their own tracks and to make an enemy out of people, especially marginalized folks, like trans youth. Like, I can't, like, wh why wouldn't you want to help youth? Why would you want to deny them health care? And also threaten the folks who are providing them health care. Like, they're threatening doctors. And it's similar to reproductive rights, too, where folks who provide abortions and or reproductive services are threatened. These are people who want to help. Why are you, what, oh, I can't, oh. So what's an action item? Well, one is you can like fucking show up if you're a cis person and show up and defend trans, trans lives everywhere. Trans Lifeline is a great resource one can donate to. Uh, it's also a, a hotline for, it's run by, created by and run by trans folks. Um, 
the creators were on the show a couple years ago, three years ago, four, I don't know, but check out the archives. They're there. One day I'll have a whole index up of the show and all the guests, the amazing folks I've been privileged enough to speak with here on the program. So Trans Lifeline is a great organization folks can donate to and also just put out the word. It's for US and Canada only, I believe, at the moment. Um, they also provide, I believe they do also provide some financial um, assistance for folks through the Trans Assistance Project, but definitely like look into it and yeah oh yeah okay so those are the folks that you should support and other folks that one can pressure would be the governor of south dakota to veto this bill which is hb 1057 you can tweet um stop or hashtag no hb 1057 and the governor's name is Kristen or christy noem and that's at g-o-v-k-r-i-s-t-i-n-o-e-m and you can also if you go to sd.gov forward slash governor forward slash contact, you can find information there to also call, write, do whatever you can, get your folks to as well, especially if you're like people in, in South Dakota, but it should be up to everyone. And there's that old saying, just because it's not your fault doesn't mean it's not your responsibility. And that's that thing where, yeah, the, the world we live in is really fucked. Systems have been in place for a very long time to keep it that way. And also, it's up to us to dismantle that and to create a better world that's free for everybody. Cool. Okay. So those were the first few stories I wanted to get to. Oh, gosh. And there's more terrible things that are happening. Spoiler alert! It's a news program, and it's it's disturbing. And also, the only way to deal with it is to like acknowledge what's happening and find solutions and also see in other points in history so we can hopefully prevent it from happening. I had a dream a few nights ago. I've been having really intense dreams. I usually do anyway, but like especially since I've been gotten sober, it's like, whoa, really clear, really vivid. And I was on a train and it got crowded and then people started disappearing. And then people had to, we realized that people had to kind of get off the train and like either go a different, just pretty much go a different way or else we're gonna just end up going to a place we didn't wanna go because we didn't really have control. And also at one point, a person had a gun pointed at me and thankfully they didn't shoot me. However, it was like, oh, this is frightening. And then I start seeing all these uh, images of the Holocaust, and then it turns out like the Holocaust Museum. And then I heard recently that it's a reminder that the Holocaust Memorial Day is coming up on the 27th. So I think partially that was in my subconscious as well. And in terms of how ICE has been operating and the police in this country have been operating and the government, et cetera, et cetera, just the ongoing abuse and violence towards so many people. And, you know, if they're not stopped, it's going to continue. It's going to get even worse. They're going to get even more people. And, like, it's already even, you know, it's always been fucking bad in this country, to be honest. And it's become more and more overt and more and more apparent. And I think sometimes folks don't recognize this until it affects them directly and or people they know directly and or they finally see it on TV and or they finally, people finally take notice. And more has to be done to stop what's happening. Okay. So uh, I did mention the narrative and I guess I'll just hop to this story. Hopped. I don't know. I said hop. I'll hop to this story. Um, to start, and that has to do with uh, journalism, and it goes to the whole idea with narrative and the stories that people that we hear. What what facts do we actually hear, and how journalists continue to get threatened, and whistleblowers are still threatened and imprisoned. And it's like, why are the whistleblowers in prison? Chelsea Manning's in jail, Julian Assange's in jail, yet the war criminals are the ones going free. 
Dick Cheney's walking around. Karl Rove is walking around. Yet people who point out war crimes, they're the ones who are in jail. Similar to Ramsey Ora, Orta, who videotaped uh, police violence, a uh, killing. I think about that quite a bit. He filmed the death of Eric Garner, and he was sent to jail. Not the police who actually killed Eric Garner, but the person who witnessed it and shared that information. Oh, it's backwards. It's very backwards, and I think it's to live in this country, to understand what's happening, to know what's happening. It's like, what the fuck? How? And also, it's been going on. I mean, I feel like I would imagine when this when I started doing this in 2013, this show, it was similar and I know it was certainly similar I'm just thinking about like my opinion and my feelings on it it's like things have only gotten worse okay so we're gonna go to this article here and I probably won't read all of it it's pretty long but I do want to read a little bit of it and share it with folks so if you'd like to read more you can please do check it out the Empire's war on oppositional journalism continues to escalate and this was written by Caitlin Johnstone for Medium, you can check it out at medium.com, and it was published on January 21st, and you can follow, also follow Caitlin Johnstone on Twitter. And they start off with, there's a start off with a, a passage from the New York Times, citing intercepted messages between Mr. Greenwald and the hackers. Prosecutors say the journalists played a clear role in facilitating the commission of a crime. For instance, prosecutors contend that Mr. Greenwald encouraged the hackers to delete archives that had already been shared with the Intercept Brazil in order to cover their tracks. Prosecutors also say that Mr. Greenwald was communicating with the hackers while they were actively monitoring private chats on Telegram, a messaging app. The complaint charged six other individuals, including four, who were detained last year in connection with a cell phone hacking. This argument is essentially indistinguishable from the argument currently being used by the Trump administration in charging Assange with 17 counts of violating the Espionage Act. The U.S. Department of Justice alleges that Assange attempted to provide Private Manning with advice and assistance in covering her tracks while leaking documents she already had access to, therefore for making Assange party to a conspiracy against the United States. It's not surprising that Brazil is advancing the same war on journalism we've been seeing in the U.S., U.K., Australia, and France. With the election of the overtly, overtly fascist Jair Bolsonaro in October 2018, an election whose corrupt foundations were exposed by Greenwald's reporting with the Intercept Brazil, the Brazilian government moved into full alignment with the U.S. centralized empire, which was why his inauguration was enthusiastically celebrated by characters like 45, Mike Pompeo, Sean Bolton and Benjamin Netanyahu. It is in exactly the same way we saw a coordination between the U.S., U.K., Sweden, Ecuador, and Australia to immobilize and then silence and then imprison Julian Assange. We are seeing a uniform movement toward silencing oppositional journalism throughout the entire U.S. centralized empire. This is because a rising China and the increasing coziness of the cluster of nations which have resisted absorption into the imperial blob greatly imperil the USA's position as the unpopular global dominator, meaning that the empire needs to quickly shore up global control in order to avoid being surpassed and replaced by other power structures. In order to accomplish this, there is going to be a lot of nefarious behavior, a lot of military escalations, a lot of CIA coups, a lot of bullying and subversion, 
and a whole lot of propaganda to grease the wheels of public consent. Such large, frantic, flailing movements can easily be exposed by a free press, which is precisely why the free press is being clamped down upon now. The empire is setting all these legal precedents against oppositional journalism because it fully intends to use those precedents in the future. It fully intends to use those legal precedents in the future because it knows it's going to have to make things ugly. This is all being done to prevent the public from gaining a clear understanding of what's really going on in their world. Because if the public had a clear understanding of what's going on in their world, the empire would forever lose its ability to control them and rule them. Whoever controls the narrative controls the world. The imperialists understand this. The public, by and large, do not. And the imperialists intend to keep it that way. Glenn Greenwald has spent the last three years being falsely smeared as a stooge of authoritarian governments while he was actually doing more damage to an authoritarian government than all of his critics combined. Public trust in oppressive institutions like the oppressive institutions that empire loyalists have been protecting by smearing Greenwald as a Kremlin agent and a puppin, excuse me, puppin, making up words now, uh, and a poop, excuse me, Putin puppet uh, can be severely weakened by the exposure of their dark underbellies and the light of truth. I'm also going to just comment that uh, I'm wanting to lean away from using the word dark as something nefarious and light as something good because of all the connotations with that. The imperialists know this, and they are determined not to allow it to continue, hence their persecution of Assange and hence their persecution of Greenwald. All right, so you can find that article. I ended up reading it all. Uh, <laughs> that happened. And you can also, there's also a Bitcoin donation uh, for the writer that folks can use. And, and I, uh, what's it called? It's a, uh, oh my, I am, my memory. Um, it's, uh, I can't think of it. You all know, head to the article if you're able to. It's on medium.com, written by Caitlin Johnstone. Uh, QR code. That's it. QR code. You can also find information there for Bitcoin to donate to the writer as well. All right. I'm going to play a little bit more from The Harder They Come, and then we'll be back with some more after this.
Welcome back to the Weekly Review. I have a fundraiser here I wanted to share. Stop the Demolition and Preserve 227 Duffield Street. And you can find this on Twitter, and it's also GoFundMe. I've shared it now on the Twitter at R-O-M-A-N-R-I-M-A-R. Please retweet a little bit about this campaign. Please help with with a last-ditch effort to save 227 Duffield, a site on the Underground Railroad in downtown Brooklyn from demolition. Please support the hashtag abolitionist challenge to raise $5 million as soon as possible to buy back the property from the developer. And this is from uh, Friends of Abolitionist Place are raising money to buy back the abolitionist home of 227 Duffield Street and make it a museum to preserve Brooklyn's abolitionist history. The home belonged to a prominent to prominent abolitionists Harriet and Thomas Truesdell and was a stop on the Underground Railroad. Due to gentrification, the property is now owned by private developers who want to demolish the home as soon as possible to build a 13-story luxury residential complex. The demolition of 227 Duffield is imminent and can happen any day now unless we stop it. In the 1980s, former owner Mama Joy, may she rest in power, discovered a door in the basement. Upon further investigation, she learned the door was a historical entrance where people escaping enslavement dropped eight feet from the backyard into a sub-basement 
that led into a tunnel to travel from house to house inconspicuously. And they have footage of the basement. There's a link in the GoFundMe. Additional research revealed the home belonged to abolitionists Thomas and Harriet Truesdell during the 1850s when the Fugitive Slave Act was the law of the land. The Truesdells are known to have been friends with and hosted the abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison. Located in a part of downtown Brooklyn that was a hotbed for Underground Railroad activity, 227 Duffield Street is close to the former home of conductor William Harned and institutions such as Lafayette Avenue Presbyterian Church, the former Bridge Street African Wesleyan Methodist Episcopal Church, and Plymouth Church of the Pilgrims, all which have been documented stops on the Underground Railroad. Plymouth Church of the Pilgrims once held the nickname Grand Central Depot of the National Underground Railroad System. Today, the property at 227 Duffield Street is the last known standing site of the historic abolitionist residences in Brooklyn, which have all been demolished due to New York City's downtown Brooklyn development plan and have been replaced with 30-story buildings towering over this historical beacon. Can you imagine a street named Abolitionist Place devoid of abolitionist landmarks? The city of New York is refusing to acknowledge this significant piece of abolitionist and anti-racist history in Brooklyn. Buying the property back at market value is our only chance to save it, as the New York City Landmarks Preservation Commission has not agreed to investigate the home for landmark status. It is our duty to ensure the legacy of resistance to unjust and inhumane laws in New York City and this country is not only remembered, but celebrated and passed on to future generations. We must not stop working to commemorate 227 Duffield Street slash abolitionist place as a museum, as a bastion of abolitionist activity, a history of which we can all be proud. Please support the hashtag abolitionist challenge to raise $5 million as soon as possible to buy back the property from the developer. Hashtag stop this demolition. Hashtag save 227 Duffield. Hashtag black landmarks matter. Hashtag black history matters. Hashtag preserve black history. Hashtag Brooklyn is not for sale. And they also provide press information from New York One News, Curbed, Brooklyn Eagle, and City Lab. So again, this is a GoFundMe. I've also shared it on Twitter as well. And I'm going to look at the, um, excuse me, the link right now. And it was also, uh, it was originally shared by uh, Equality Flatbush, which I encourage folks to follow. And oops, going to, um, you can follow them on Twitter at Equal Flatbush. Um, on Twitter, so please do follow them. And also they have a website, equalityforflatbush.org. <sighs> on the theme of developers wanting to take over homes, I'm going to switch over and uh, talk a little bit about, or I'm not going to talk, I'm just going to play some information, some interviews uh, from Moms for Housing. They're back on Democracy Now!, or uh, Misty Cross was one of the mothers, and then uh, Carol Fife, who's an activist, who's with them. Um, I believe, I haven't seen this entire interview. I'm going to play a little bit of it. It's from Democracy Now!, and I'll play a clip. It's been shared on Democracy Now! and Moms for Housing. Everything's so, here we go. You were evicted from the house, um, battering ram, SWAT team, arrested. And now Wedgwood Properties, which owns the house, um, is saying you can buy it through the land trust? We're still skeptical of that. Um, we're still in negotiations with that, even though we're 
glad that Wedgwood wants to come forth and do the right thing. We're still skeptical on how this whole agreement came into play. Um, it went on with our mayor, Libby Schaff, behind closed doors. We still don't understand what the agreement was that brought them to the table, being as that we had City Council Representative Rebecca Kaplan and Nikki Bass to help negotiate um, agreements through the land trust from the beginning. So we're still skeptical of what Regwood really wants to agree on and why are they now trying to settle things after all of this trauma has been caused to us. All right, and there's also an article from The Guardian, mothers who occupied vacant Oakland house will be, will be allowed to buy it. Uh, intervention of California governor, they say helps Moms for Housing Group score a victory fight against the state's homeless crisis. And that was written by Vivian Ho, and that came out on January 20th. I uh, may get a chance to, to share a little bit of that um, later on in the program. And if not, please do check it out again from The Guardian. Mothers who occupied vacant Oakland house will be allowed to buy it. Um, but again, it's best to hear from the mothers directly. And I also wanted to uh, share on the Moms for Housing Twitter, which you can follow at Moms for the number four housing. You can also find them online, moms number four housing.org. Their pin tweet uh, please sign and share our petition to hold our sheriff's department accountable for this unnecessary militarized raid that traumatized our West Oakland neighborhood. And again, they came in, the sheriffs came in with like AR 15s and like tanks, all because folks were seeking shelter. That's pretty fucked up. And they also arrested people. So you can sign the petition. Again, it's a change.org petition. But if you go to Moms for Housing on Twitter, uh, they provide a link to the petition there as well. All right, moving along, I'm going to play a. Um, clip here, an audio clip I mentioned earlier. It's from Crossroads Women. And I'll read a little bit, just found out about this recently. Uh, created by a group of 16 to 21 year olds as a youth training project, this film includes archived photographs, a pop-up book, film clips, interviews with some of the founders and users over a six month period in 2014. Donna, Nathan, and Holly trained with Rob Logan. They learned photography, video editing, interviewing, and archiving skills to produce a short film. This was premiered on January 23rd, 2015 at the center before a packed audience of different generations of the Crossroads community and marked the 40th anniversary of the center. The film traces different buildings, memories, struggles, and activities of the center up to its current home in Kentish Town, and this is in London. So again, this is a little over 25-minute 20, video here you can find online at crossroadswomen.net forward slash watch our film. And again, I found this on a Twitter thread. I'm going to go back to here. Let's see if I can provide the specific, uh, it's a feminine, feminist housing video. Oh, oh yes, by uh, Feminist City, and that's at F-E-M-I-N-I-S-C-I-T-Y, and it's a thread of feminist occupation. So this is just one of the many, and it was inspired by Moms for Housing, uh, the thread. So yeah, let's play this. <laughs> Where did it go? Uh, okay. It's coming along one. There we go. Great. All right, we'll play this video and be back uh, afterwards. Our women's center began as a squat. 
Oxford Women's Center. The story of six buildings and over 15 groups beginning in 1975. This is London, 1975. Another point of organization for us is our women's center. Women come in to tell us about the struggles they're involved in, to chat, to find out what other women are doing, to see what facilities are open to them, to see how they can make contact with other women so that they can be stronger in the struggles that they're involved in. And women just started to, to come along. I mean, the first visitors were women um, housewives from the Bangladeshi community who had a, a number of issues. Uh, one is that they were being forcibly injected with the contraceptive Deprovera. So we had to take that up with the hospital. Uh, they were also facing eviction because the whole area, they were squatting and they were facing eviction because the area was being redeveloped. And a number of organisations were beginning to form. As you know, there's a number of, I don't know, something like 15, 16, 17 groups and projects in that base at the centre now. But in the early days, um, I mean, there were much fewer. You know, there were black women for wages for housework formed. English kids for prostitutes, wages due lesbians, women against rape, you know, kind of started in that centre, you know, began to meet there. I think when we started um, the, the Women's Centre, it was a squat, we, there was no funding and many of the groups, or all of the groups when they started, um, came together because they wanted to um, organise and to change things. Yeah. Um, we were there probably about two years, and then we were forced out, again, part of the redevelopment, and temporarily moved to another squat on Durham Street for the summer. But it was quite a summer. <laughs> no, and uh, it was just very exciting. You know, the 70s, there was just a lot going on. You felt there was kind of a lot of new ground, you know? There were a lot of squats. We were not the only squat by any means. You just felt squatting was a kind of a standard thing. If your building was too small or you were evicted, I lived in squats myself. I squatted a number of flats. And you just squatted. So you felt that it was easier to live without a lot of money. Um, so, um 
general strike in Iceland. I've spent all morning scrubbing floors and choking on the dust. Trying hard to clean my kitchen sink, the drain pipes for the rust. The midwife comes tomorrow, and if this squad don't look fine, then it's off to London Hospital. They'll induce me when it's time. And the Queen sailed up to Canada on her private yacht, while the council calls me a parasite for living in a squat. Then after that, the, they, they really seriously did want to completely evict us, and that is when we went down to the town hall and took over the members' room in the town hall for a day. Um, I changed myself to the railings of the balcony. Uh, local squatters came out to support. Um, you know, outside they were picketing and sending food up to us through a basket. And uh, we got a you know, petition with thousands of signatures you know, from the local community saying, you know, save our women's centre. So that was also you know, down over the balcony onto this dam, spilling into the street. And we went to, um, en masse, to, uh, to um, Ken Livingston's office. He, at that time, was the chair of Camden Housing Department. And he was obviously astonished to <laughs> um, have all these women saying how they needed a women's centre, and, you know, he had to do something. Um, and he said, well, actually, there are some places. And we had no option to say, really, that there were some places and you would look into it. And soon after, he said there was a place, 71 Tunbridge Street, which we moved into in 1979. It was a very dilapidated place, but it was three rooms and a kitchen. So compared to our previous places, it seemed vast. <laughs> and uh, we... Um, we were there for 18 years. I was home for 18 years. I arrived at the King's Cross Women's Centre, which was located in Tonbridge Street. Yeah. And uh, I was, I was like, okay, where is this women's centre? And I could see some signs, uh, handwritten signs on the wall, which fascinated me because I was a sign writer. So I thought, well, this is the centre, let me, let me go into this. And I was absolutely astonished when I walked in as to how small the uh, space was. From quite an early time, trying to help with um, refurbishing some of the problems and, and dealing with some of the problems as best we could. Um, and on average, I would come up probably once a month to London. When I say come up, the time I was living in Bristol, so you know it was 120 miles to come up. Um, and then I began to increase the frequency, and the centre then became a real sort of second home for me. In some ways, the memorable times have also been the times when we weren't actually in the centre and have been about what we've managed to uh, organise as, as the different groups that are based here, um, working collectively together. Women were paid for all we do, I tell you one thing that's true is true. We wouldn't be free, but I'm telling you, there'd be a lot of wages due. And there'd be a lot of wages due for every time we smiled. 
in order to get a tip or two to make it almost worthwhile. And there'd be a lot of wages due for every time we're raped. And there'd be a lot of wages due for each time that we escaped. Now what do you think would happen if we women went on strike? There'd be no breakfast in the morning, there'd be no screw at night. There'd be no nurses treating you, there'd be no waitress serving you, be no typist typing you, it'll be all right. There'd be no mothers nursing you, there'd be no wives waiting on you, there'd be no daughters pleasing you, it'll be all right. There'd be a lot of wages due for every time we smiled, in order to get a tip or two to make it almost worthwhile. And there'd be a lot of wages due for every time we you know, it didn't happen overnight, but exactly. you know, with time, got more involved at the centre, and then the following year after I'd met the centre, we started the Invisible Group in 1984. So, um, but that was really why I got involved was was the feeling of being welcomed and included was really the main the main draw, mm. and. Also, that everyone was there. I mean, the thing is that um, differences between people were were acknowledged and and worked out. It wasn't that they were they weren't passed over, but um, you know, it was just an opportunity to to meet a lot of different people on a on a basic on an equal basis. I got involved in uh, nineteen eighty three. Um, I was at a college. Um, I was at a polytechnic in Kentish Town, as it happens. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I remember sitting in the room, in the front room at the King's Cross Women's Centre and just looking around at the walls and the things that were on the walls. And I've been learning, I was studying philosophy and I've been learning about Marx. <laughs> and, and I remember sitting there and thinking, my God, this is the real thing. <laughs> you know, I've really found the real thing in action. You know, this is like a real community movement. We got a call saying, oh, there's an occupation, can you come? And it was called by sex workers together with Women Against Rape. And a woman had gone into a church in King's Cross to protest against police illegality and racism. Uh, the, the women had been absolutely targeted by the police, hounded, and so decided to go into a church uh, following the example of the French sex workers' strike in the 70s. So we went down, I was a student at the time, and I was just blown away because it was all kinds of women. Uh, black women's groups came, women came from Green on Common, Tony Ben came with his wife, uh, women, mothers, uh, women came with babies, there were about five women with little tiny babies, mm. and those mm. those babies are now adult, adults now with kids of their own, so it was just, um, that was a period when I really got involved with the center because you felt the power of different sectors getting together, sex workers, women of color, women, men, and just a tremendous experience. Sometimes there was also uh, attacks from fascist National Front in the area. Mm -hmm. There was, um, they put like kill queers on the door, and they also padlocked uh, a black women's meeting, and they also threatened to firebomb the centre with the English collective of prostitutes uh, in it. But again, I mean, whenever we were faced with these kind of 
you know, threats or needed support. We really found we were able to count on the local community. People really came out. And our slogan was share the housework, sweep out the Nazis. You know, we kind of marched around the streets. And in fact, they did actually go. And it really was a community resource. And I remember um, how strong it was as a community resource when the, when the council tried to throw us out. Um, which was started, I think, in uh, 1995, thereabouts, or maybe a bit earlier, when there was an attempt to um, gentrify and clean up King's Cross. And uh, we, had a, we had a ball, actually, fighting against the closure of the centre. But it was not one we were going to win in the sense of actually keeping that centre, but we certainly could see when it, you know, after being there so 18 years and I mean communities near and far kind of really came out in support. There was a huge fundraising effort to kind of, you know, keep the centre going. And that led to us moving into Kentish Town, 230 um, Kentish Town Road, which we called the Crossroads Women's Centre. one of the people who was quite heavily involved in refurbishing that centre too, you know, that, right down to physical work because uh, it included um, relaying the electrical wiring, uh, so I had some of the skills for doing that, um, doing the lighting, but we had a lot of help, you know, people were very, I think they were very struck by the fact that as a women's group we wanted to put our energy into making a place and space for ourselves and for the community and not just settle for any old space. Space across the road is mu was much, much bigger. Uh, space across the road was also wheelchair accessible when we moved there. Um, and it would meant that we could just meet, you know, the different groups based at the Women's Centre could have more space to meet independently but also meet together and we could have like public meetings, film showings, things like that which we really couldn't have properly in the other one in King's Cross. Uh, we had when visible, um, had self-help sessions, uh, learning about different changes in the benefit system that the government was bringing in. We had like, you know, people speaking to each other, including people from our countries who are wheelchair users and how they organised. You know, the homeopathic clinic and other complementary health services started, number of groups expanded, the All African Women's Group. The All African Women's Group is a group of women asylum seekers from all over the world. It was formed in 2003 and is a self-help group. We help and support each other and we speak out against injustice. It may be injustice about housing and medical care, but mainly the asylum system. We meet every two weeks at the Crossroads Women's Centre there are 40 to 50 women at each meeting. We also volunteer at the sessions that happen during the week, where we work with other women's groups like Black Women's Rape Action Project and Women Against Rape, taking calls from women in detention. We are often a lifeline for women inside Yazwood. We use our experience of being in detention and going through the asylum system to give women suggestions on what to do 
and send them information like legal action for women's asylum guide. Most of the women who come to the group are mothers. Most of us have suffered rape and other torture. Some of us are separated from our children who were forced to leave behind when we fled. We see women who come to the group crying, destitute and alone. Within a month, they are able to support themselves, understand where the cases have gone wrong and come out fighting. One unique thing about this women's center and our group is that any member of all African women's group is a person with a name and a face, whereas with men organization you find that you are just a statistic. The group gives us strength. We get called bogus asylum seekers and suffer racism and other discrimination. If an individual was to come out and speak out, they could be targeted. But as a group, we stand and we are strong. Asylum seekers, single mothers, self-defense, global women strike, they kind of all started, really got going in that center. But in fact, we quite quickly, um, when, you know, were realized it was actually going to get too small and almost straight away started having to fundraise and actually look for a bigger place. most difficult thing was to raise the money to do it in the first place. That was hell on wheels. And people were so astonished that a group of grassroots women could get this together that they really pitched in to help and donated, donated things for the sales that we had, you know, to raise money and the Christmas fairs and things like that. Some people came to paint you know, because we had to do that painting to save the money. And people volunteered. They were very kind. And they really felt that they were making it their centre, which indeed they had done. And there were working groups on the disability access and the solar panels and the insulation and, you know, keep making it sustainable and making it green and disability accessible. And so it was a lot of work over, I think it was about a year we were working on it in total. So we can now kind of have much, much bigger public meetings and we can actually have conferences downstairs. We also have these more private offices so we can meet, uh, if somebody comes in who wants help and wants to speak confidentially, we can more easily do that than we could across the road. So it's made a, a massive difference. It's really that the community doesn't have much chance to get together without officials and that we're always begging for a place to meet, you know, the mums groups and the community groups and the tenants associations. And you often have to pay through the nose for a meeting hall and we wanted a base for women and their families to be able to come together for what they felt they needed. There's a lot of groups based here and um, I work with the English Collector of Prostitutes which is the group of sex workers based at this centre and our, the political work that we do is we campaign for the decriminalisation and safety of prostitution. Um, the political work 
is that we also campaign for money and resources so that women can leave prostitution if they want to and that obviously links in with the political work of the centre against benefit sanctions and against um, the welfare reforms and the welfare cuts and cuts to single mothers. I mean all the different groups here do a lot of work making connections between issues and that's something that's changed the way that I look at things, that a lot of things are connected nationally and internationally. Capitalism is a few. Post-capitalism, real new society, some people call it socialism, some people call it communism, some people just call it a better society or a better world. That is based on everybody saying what should be and how it should be in a collective way where each individual matters but the collective also matters. We have an international network and we, we have to have a world. You know, the world that I was describing has to be just on an international level, you know, the end of war, the absolute end of war and the end of ecological devastation. So, and People in a lot of places in the world where we're in touch are doing similar things. So we were able, because there was this centre in London, to do some work in Montreal. So, uh, so we, at the time, the internet really wasn't uh, <laughs> available, so it was all done by post and by long distance and all that. There was um, a men's group that was created, I think, in '75. And, in fact, there was a conference in 88 and some of the men in pay, they invited me to do crash work. Because that was one of the things that men were invited to do, to support the work that women were doing. So, here I was with all these kids and, and all that, <laughs> which was a, a new experience, but, you know, it was good. And then we were also able to join in some workshop and all that, some discussion. There are many things that have to happen and there's no place where people can get together, or very few places. Often there are church halls, but this is for everyone, beginning with women. And we begin with women, because if you don't begin with women, the, the, the women and the children are left out. But if you begin with women, everybody is included. And if you feel you're going to win, you're going to fight harder, and you're going to be cannier, you're going to be smarter because you expect to win and you're more hopeful and see more possibilities. You know, I mean, women are, yeah, very resourceful. And of course, we've just learned so, so much from so many women coming to the centre. You know, we all learn from each other. Because as women, we are often more than just one thing. So it's really, you know, it's a, I think one of the memorable things is to have so many different organisations based here so that if we are um, in need of support and, and we are in need of, of working things out amongst ourselves as to how we're going to shape or form campaigns we can do it in a way where we are not um, we are not promoting our own particular needs say as black women or as lesbian women or as um, women with disabilities over the needs of others, that we on the one hand retain our autonomy and on the other hand we can work together and 
pool our, our, our skills and resources, which of course become much greater um, when we are not fighting alone. We wouldn't be free, but I'm telling you, there'd be a lot of wages due. And there'd be a lot of wages due for every time we smile. In order to get a tip or two to make it almost worthwhile. And there'd be a lot of wages due for every time we're raped. And there'd be a lot of wages due for each time that we escaped. Now what do you think would happen if we women went on strike? There'd be no breakfast in the morning, there'd be no screw at night. All right, so this was a video from uh, Crossroads Women, and you can find it at crossroadswomen.net forward slash watch-r-film. Coming up, I'm going to play a little bit more music from the soundtrack to The Harder They Come, and after that, we'll be back with uh, a little bit more news, so stay tuned.
welcome back to the weekly review. That was the Maytals with Pressure Drop playing the second, second, the side B of The Harder They Come, the original soundtrack recording. Got another story, uh, two linked stories, and then we'll finish up the album. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you would like, please support the radio station. We've got the Comedy Festival coming up in March. It's the fifth, sixth annual. It's been going on for a while now. So please get your tickets to that. You can also support the station by going to Venmo and Venmoing us uh, at Mutiny Radio, all one word. Also, if you'd like to support this program in particular, it would be greatly appreciated. You can go to patreon.com forward slash weekly rev. You can also find me on Venmo at R-O-M-A-N dash R-I-M-E-R. Every little bit helps. Uh, and also, if you're interested in having a show here, we also have plenty of spots available. So check out more information at mutinyradio.fm. All right. We're going to finish up here with it's fucking terrible. Ugh, I know that uh, it's here we are listening to really nice music. And then now it's like, oh, and then here's some really sad stories. However, I have to have to share it. So this is a, a two-parter. Um, the first one, I'm just going to do it in chronological order, from The Guardian, uh, written by Caleb Hampton, came out on January 14th. Treated like a terrorist, U.S. deports growing number of Iranian students with valid visas from U.S. airports. Some of the students have been barred from the United States for years, despite having gone through an intense approval process. Mohammed Elmi was on his way to fulfill a lifelong dream. On December 13, 2019, the 31-year-old Iranian boarded a flight to Los Angeles to join his wife in the United States and start a PhD program at the University of California, Santa Barbara. 65 hours later, he was back in the Iranian capital, Tehran, refused entry to the United States by immigration officers at the airport. In Iran, Elmi had helped design the country's first portable electrocardiogram service, which made cardiac monitoring more accessible to rural populations. He was accepted to study biomedical applications of electrical engineering in Santa Barbara, where his wife, Shima Musavi, is pursuing a master's degree and had received a visa to travel to the U.S. Preparing for the move, he had left his job and depleted his savings, planning to live off his new teaching and research assistant position. But when Elmi stopped off the plane after a long, sleepless flight, he was detained by U.S. Customs and Border Protection, boo, CBP. Over the next 24 hours, he was held in a series of rooms in a restricted section of Los Angeles International Airport and was searched and questioned repeatedly by CBP. Musavi waited near the airport for eight hours before her phone rang. I'm so sorry, Elmi told her. They are sending me back to Iran. Last year, The Guardian reported U.S. authorities were increasingly stopping Iranian students from boarding U.S.-bound flights without informing them their visas had been canceled prior to travel. In recent months, however, a growing number of Iranians with valid student visas have been detained upon arrival at U.S. airports by Customs and Border Protection and deported back to Iran. Some of them have been barred from returning to the United States for years. Since August, at least 10 students have been sent back to Iran upon their arrival at U.S. airports, the Guardian found, the most recent of whom was deported on January 3rd. And again, uh, this article was written a few weeks ago, and I'll be reading an updated version after this. Seven of those 10 students had flown into Logan International Airport in Boston, where some of them allege serious infractions by CBP, including multiple complaints about an individual officer. According to the Public Affairs Alliance of Iranian Americans, a not-for-profit advocacy organization, 
the removal of Iranian students upon their arrival has increased substantially within the past few months as political tensions between Washington and Tehran have escalated. The number of cases we hear about from other communities does not compare to what's happening to Iranians, said Ali Ranama, P-A-A-I-A attorney. By the time Iranian students arrive at a U.S. airport, they've already gone through a lengthy and intense approval process. Iranians with student visas are exempt from the Trump administration's travel ban, which bars most Iranians from traveling to the U.S. While most student visa applications are handled within U.S. embassies, visas for Iranians are vetted by U.S. intelligence agencies in Washington, D.C., and greenlit by the Department of Homeland Security before being issued. Despite the rigorous vetting process, CBP appeared to question in most of the deported students' cases whether their past or future work might violate U.S. sanctions on Iran's government, nuclear, and energy sectors. Several deported students said CBP accused them during questioning of concealing connections with the Iranian government they had allegedly established during the two years of military service all men in Iran must complete. Those students said that they had fulfilled their military service during doing low-level administrative tasks. Elmi worked at an office that provided housing loans to army personnel. Havad, a, an incoming University of Pittsburgh student who declined to give his last name out of concern for future visa applications, said he was told by CBP officers at the Boston airport he was being deported because of a sanctions violation relating to his service, even though he had completed his military service filing paperwork in a dentistry office. Another student who declined to be identified said he was deported from Boston after officers found a photo on his phone showing him in military uniform. Several immigration attorneys said they could not make sense of these deportations. Why should an eight-month visa process be thrown out over a couple questions at the airport, Ran Ranama said. These students already disclosed all their information and went through months and months of security clearance, he added. Elmi, has said, El Elmi said many of the questions CBP asked him at LAX had come up during his visa application process months earlier. They were the exact same questions, he said. If there was any problem with my career, they should not have issued me a visa, said Mala Shakaje, uh, an incoming Iowa State University graduate student who was refused entry at the Boston airport in late December over her, her work with a packing packaging company that sold products to companies associated with Iranian oil production. Uh, Shakaje had quit her job after receiving her U.S. visa, moved out of her apartment, turned down other Ph.D. offers, and bought a plane ticket to the U.S. that had cost four months' pay. They ruined my plans for the next five years, she said. In addition to being questioned, the students say they had their phones, laptops, and hard drives searched. Some were asked questions about their religious and political beliefs. Between rounds of questioning, officers searched the contents of Elmi's bags and made him unlock his phone and write down the password. Then, in another room, they told him to spread his legs and put his hands on the wall. They started with my legs and worked up, Elmi said. They treated me like I was a terrorist. Several of the students who were deported from the Boston airport said the screening was aggressive and in some cases abusive. A student held for questioning at the airport in August while he was en route to Detroit said he was held in a private, that he was led to a private room with a metal table. In the room, the officer's behavior changed. He got aggressive, said the student who declined to be identified for fear of retribution in future visa applications. Tell us the fucking truth. The student remembers the officer shouting, I was so scared I was shaking, the student said. The officer asked him if he was a radical Muslim. Other students reported that the same officer had shouted at them, asking one of them whether he had a girlfriend or if he likes blondes like other Arabs do. Ugh. 
One student said he was told by a CBP translator in Logan Airport to avoid flying through Boston in the future. If you get a new visa, the student recalls the translator saying, don't fly through Boston. The rules are stricter here. All of the students denied entry to Boston were officially deported and banned from the U.S. for five years. Multiple students said CBP gave them records of their questioning that were partly inaccurate or fabricated, while others were just put on planes back to Iran without a copy of the paperwork. I don't know under which section of the law I was not allowed to enter the U.S., Shakhaja said. CBP told The Guardian it was not at liberty to discuss an individual's processing and that it prohibits profiling on the basis of race or religion. C- oh, they fucking quote the CBP spokesperson and just fucking lies fucking lies next paragraph i'm gonna just not even fucking quote these fucking assholes Ugh. paia said it plans to file a complaint on behalf of the students with the department of homeland security's office of civil rights and civil liberties the advocacy group will ask for an investigation into whether there is a nationwide change in policy causing the deportation of iranians at ports of entry or whether certain airports might have issued their own directives regarding the screening of Iranians. What is happening with Iranian students is incredibly surprising, said Masa Kanbabai, the New England chair, the New England chapter chair for the American Immigration Lawyers Association, AILA. It definitely warrants an investigation. After eight hours at the Los Angeles airport, an officer told Elmi he could go back to Iran voluntarily or roll the dice and let CBP either grant him entry or formally deport him, an outcome that would come with a five-year ban from the U.S. Elmi started crying and told the officer he couldn't voluntarily withdraw without seeing his wife. Eventually, CBP told Elmi he would be deported unless he chose to leave. He agreed and was given a... uh, I, oh my god, CBP is so fucking evil. He's given a $3,750 bill for the flight back to Iran. They are so fucking evil. Around 9 p.m., CBP stamped the words application for admission withdrawn in his passport and handed him a phone to call his wife. It was a very short call, he said. I wanted to show her that I am strong and this is not a big problem. Will they let you see me? Musavi asked. No, Elmi said. Musavi searched the airport for help finding her husband, but the CBP office was closed for the night. She wandered through the terminal until daybreak. To console herself, she wrote Elmi a text message, though she knew he would not receive it. Here in the airport, I can feel you close to me. She was still at the airport at 3 p.m. when Elmi used in-flight Wi-Fi to send her a voice message asking her to forgive him. Since then, Elmi and Musavi have been adrift. Their financial losses are compounded by the, by the dramatic fall of the Iranian rile over the past several years, largely a result of U.S. sanctions. Now they're broke, jobless, and thousands of miles apart with no idea how they will be able to see each other. Musavi does not know where she will find the money to complete her master's program. They destroyed us, Elmi said. uh, Simon Campbell contributed to this report. So fucking evil. And this happened again recently. And there's an article from Time Magazine. You can go to time.com. Northeastern University student sent back to Iran despite valid visa. Judges order as immigration attorneys warn of troubling pattern. And this was written by Kate, Katie Riley. And this um, came out on January 22nd. 
An Iranian student planning to attend Northeastern University in Boston was sent back to Iran by immigration officials on Monday night, despite an emergency ruling from a federal judge allowing him to stay in the U.S. while his case was reviewed. Attorneys for the student said that the case is part of a troubling pattern. Mohammad Shahab Deg- Degani Hossein, 24, was admitted to the university's undergraduate program for the 2018-2019 academic year, and he was issued a student visa by the U.S. State Department about a week ago after nearly one year of administrative processing. But when he arrived at Boston Logan International Airport on Sunday, officials refused to admit him to the U.S. on his student visa, according to an emergency lawsuit filed Monday to block his removal. Customs officials detained him and questioned him for hours, abruptly revoking his student visa, which the State Department granted after a year of intense vetting, said Carol Rose, executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts, in a statement on Tuesday. We awoke to the news that Customs and Border Patrol Protection, what, oh, I'm so fucking angry, oh, I'm so angry, had deported Dagami Hussein, putting him on an air France flight, despite the judge's order, Rose said. I wish I could say we were surprised, but we've seen this kind of flagrant flagrant defiance of the law from immigration officials before. In a statement on Wednesday, Customs and Border Protection, CBP, said Dagani Hussein was deemed inadmissible. <laughs> fucking Oh, goodness. I'm not even going to... Again, not going to repeat their fucking lies. Attorney for Dagani Hussein alleged the revocation of his student visa is a result of additional scrutiny targeting Iranian citizens. According to a report from The Guardian, which is the story I read previously, at least 10 students have been sent back to Iran after arriving in at U.S. airports in recent months, most of those removals occurring at Boston's Logan Airport. And I'm also going to interject. It seemed like the folks were saying it was like one of the same people who was giving people a hard time. And if that person, that person at CBP could be named and outed and fired from his fucking job... That would be a fucking start. Oh, gosh. How many people's lives are fucking torn apart by just fucking assholes in uniforms? Oh, just wielding their power and causing great harm. (sighs) Tensions between the U.S. and Iran have intensified in recent weeks after a U.S. airstrike approved by Fuckface45 killed Iran's General Qasem Soleimani and Iran responded with a missile attack on Iraqi military bases housing U.S. troops. <sighs> Once Dagani Hussein had been removed by immigration authorities, a federal judge who was supposed to hold a hearing to review the student's case on Tuesday said it was now moot. I don't think they're going to listen to me, Judge Richard Stearns said of immigration authorities, according to the Boston Globe. Degani Hossein's removal sparked protests at the airport and courthouse in Boston and drew criticism from Democratic leaders in the state. Uh, you've got Joe Kennedy III tweeting about it with video, and lots of folks came to the airport. Northeastern officials said they have not yet received a satisfactory explanation from CBP. They're working with elected officials in hopes that the agency will reconsider the removal motion so the student can resume his studies in a timely manner, university spokesperson Renata Neal said in a statement. We believe that a clear explanation is needed, especially because the deportation took place after a 48-hour extension was granted by a federal judge, Neal said. Only in the most extreme instances should students have their academic pursuits interrupted by government intervention. But Deghani Hussein's path forward is unclear. 
His attorneys said his life and career remain in limbo, and Rose said the ACLU would explore options to hold immigration authorities accountable for wrongfully deporting Iranians and other students who hold visas, who hold valid visas. Students deserve to follow their dreams. Many of the people turned away by our government were admitted to some of the most prestigious higher education institutions in the country. Some are, there are some of the best, these are some of the best and brightest, and their presence here enriches us all. Even after they are admitted to schools, Iranian students endure months of intense scrutiny and spend large sums of large sums to apply for visas, Rose said in a statement, to upend their lives and their future careers so cruelly at the last minute does more than dehumanize them. It dehumanizes us. It says to the world that we are not a welcoming nation, but a mean and capricious one, and that our laws are nothing but pretext for wanton discrimination. <sighs> that sounds like the U.S. to me. So again, you can find this article from Time. is written by Katie Riley, and it came out on January 22nd. It's about 1.42, so I'm going to wrap up the show here. I'm going to finish the soundtrack to The Harder They Come. Highly recommend folks check out this album. Uh, well, so many great songs on there. So great. We'll be back next week. we got a couple guests lined up for the next following weeks of shows, so really looking forward to that. And thanks again for listening, everyone. And hopefully next week will bring us some more positive news. And a big thank you to everyone out there living your authentic life and being truthful and working to protect each other. Have a great week, everyone. Sitting here in limbo But I know it won't be long Sitting here in limbo Like a bird without a song Well, they're putting up resistance But I know that my faith will lead me on
it's your boy Sifo here, here to let you know that the 5th Annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival is March 1st through 7th. 2020 with special podcasts and comedy shows 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. all week. Get your tickets now on Eventbrite. Just search Mutiny Radio and get ready for 76 comics from all over the U.S. coming for 66 programs in seven days all here at 2781 21st Street in the heart of the mission. Or if you can't be with us, listen live or podcast from anywhere in the world at www.mutinyradio.fm Join us March 1st to 7th for these amazing events. What kind of a future? Claw Tigers, we fight for motorcyclists. We're not just motorcycle lawyers, we're part of the riding community. Claw Tigers watches over riders. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, we'll help you get your motorcycle repaired or replaced and assist you with your damaged gear too. We're by your side every step of the way. With the Law Tigers, you never ride alone. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, call 1-800-LAW-TIGERS or visit us on the web at lawtigers.com. The Law Tigers, California's motorcycle lawyer. Enter Terrace, Harris Law Firm, LLP, 180 Permanent Circle, Suite 300, Sacramento, California, 95834. San Francisco Mutiny Radio San Francisco Mutiny Radio Listen to live streaming radio Or download a podcast and you can listen on the go Listen to live streaming radio Or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. MutinyRadio.fm Why not make a donation? MutinyRadio.fm Streaming live the station. MutinyRadio.fm District of the Mission. MutinyRadio.fm MutinyRadio.fm Listen to live streaming radio or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. Look, why not go to MutinyRadio.fm, hit the donate button, stream them live, download a podcast, have some fun!
I'm Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. Join us every Sunday, 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on MutinyRadio.fm for... Let's watch a full-length movie on... YouTube. We watch the best movies that... uh, Aren't they good? Well, they're chosen by Uh, Here's his theme song again. Bye. Okay, bye. Watch What's happening? This is your boy, Rob Edwards. I'm here to tell you about the 5th Annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival. It's March 1st through the 7th, 2020, with special podcasts and comedy shows 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. all week long. Get your tickets on Eventbrite. Just search Mutiny Radio and get ready for 76 comments from all over the U.S. Coming for 66 programs in seven days, all here at 2781 21st Street in the Deep Mission, or listen live or podcast from anywhere in the world at mutinyradio.fm. Join us March 1st through the 7th for these amazing events. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've given it a thought of two. You know, if you go to Joke Workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? 